0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Why are conservative values so difficult to present in mainstream media? A talk by Professor Margaret Somerville at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. So, I want to talk to you about the more immediate present that I deal with. and uh, here's what uh, the things I'd like to be able to address. I'm not sure that we'll get time to address all of them. Uh, I got a challenge that caused me to write this paper. I then sat down and thought, well what what is why are we in this situation? And I think we've just learnt a lot about why we're in the situation, which is enormously valuable to know that, because unless you know what happened before, you can't know what you're going to do in the future. And um, I received an invitation to go to Rome uh, a couple of months ago and to address the question, uh, what are we going to do about the media? Because the media is so biased towards the uh, leftist, so-called progressive values agenda. It's enormously hard to get anything into the media that would even challenge that or discuss it, let alone put the opposite case. And the person who asked me was the Reverend Professor Jose de la Porta, who from the uh, Pontifical University of Santa Croce in Rome, and in his invitation, he said, why is it so difficult to get that dialogue going? What is the nature of the simplification process that is being used to put forward the so-called progressive values, and uh, what can we do about it? And so that's what this paper is about. And um, one of the things I would say is that uh, I, I think we must remain optimistic that we can do something. Part of the strategy of the progressive values people is to tell us we've already lost and there's nothing we can do about that and we should just shut up and accept it. And I think that's the worst thing that we can do. A little while ago, I spoke at an Australian Medical Association conference in Victoria, in Melbourne, over the euthanasia legislation. And they contacted me before the event to say that they were not interested in hearing why we shouldn't legalize euthanasia, because it was a fact that that was going to happen. All they wanted to know was, how should we regulate it? Well, you see, that means you've already accepted that this is something that should be done. And now you're joining in. You don't regulate things that you think are inherently wrong and evil. that was what happened. Anyway, I got shouted down at the event. The audience, the audience, which was all medical practitioners, it's hard to believe, but I couldn't speak. They, they, when I went to speak, they said no, 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 no. And encouraged by the chair, who was also uh, pro-euthanasia. And afterwards I wrote an article about it and it was posted on ABC Religion and Ethics and also online on MercatorNet's site. And then the next thing I knew, I had a letter from the AMA threatening legal action against me for, for criticizing them. Well, no, they said it was defamation. So this is the sort of thing that you're putting up with. Now, people say to me, don't you get tired of always losing? And my answer is, yes, I do. But we can't guarantee that we'll win. What we can guarantee is that we'll try. And that's what you're doing, Eric. You're a good example of leading the tryers. And that's essential that we do that. So that's my first message. And I like Winston Churchill's statement, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. And courage is a crucial element. I think it's a virtue in these values battles in the culture wars that are currently taking place. But you have to be prepared for flack and criticism, and often quite nasty, from those who oppose traditional views or values. I've had lots of it, including up to needing bodyguards and kidnap-proof car. Uh, that was in Canada, not here in Australia. Let's hope it doesn't repeat itself. But there's also some you know, much more subtle ones. For example, there was a letter in the uh, Globe and Mail, the national Canadian newspaper, that said my last name should not be Summerville with two Ls. It should be Summerville, V-I-L-E. I I thought that was actually quite clever. Um, as well, what we've got to keep in mind is that Catholics the, or anybody who's Christian are the new... I don't know. that the My experience in Canada, and I worked a lot with the evangelicals, is that they're not nearly so in the... Or the Pentecostals are not nearly so in the closet as the Catholics are. But, the, you know, the Catholics, they're the big new group in the closet on, on university campuses because they're all frightened and they're rightly frightened that uh, they're going to be punished if if they say what they really believe. And I gave you an example yesterday of a student of mine just last week who said, you know, the consequences would be dire for him if he said, you know, what his values really were. So I think that what more, certainly what I see my role as, and I think it's a lot of our roles, is to give people the words that they need to express what they believe. I've very often had people come up to me after I give a lecture, for example, about euthanasia or about same-sex marriage or about any of the controversial issues and they say things like I knew what I believed but I didn't know how to say it and now I know how to say it and also we've got to engender in them the courage to speak. And this is more of that invitation that went on to say, what is the nature of the simplification process that is being used to promote the uh, left values? And um, I think that's, that's that recognising that there is a simplification process, a simplification force as a key element in the battles in the media and the public square. And um, people with much more traditional values are losing these battles. And so we have to first thing we've got to do if we're going to try and win is understand and this is what you gave us, Eric, the strategies that are being used on the other side. The next slide, please. So let's have a look at the same sex marriage debate in Australia. The pro side slogans included say yes to love, say yes to equality. Now, none of us wants to say, no, 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 no love. No, I won't treat you as equal. We're not going to do that. We have to say, yes, yes, we agree with you about that. The problem is that when the slogan describes generally what everybody should agree with, uh, we get into trouble when when that gets used then to promote something that we can't agree with on ethical grounds. As well, in the same-sex marriage debate, there was an overwhelming use of rainbow symbolism with no competing image from the nose side. And that's really important because if you listen to the psychologist, you know how a Labrador dog, his nose is the most important thing. My, My Labrador once jumped out the back window of my car when I was going through Western New South Wales. This is a while ago and the mob of kangaroos and the kangaroos were bounding like this sideways and I'm going for but the dog, if the dog had gone straight forward he would have got to the kangaroos the dog didn't do that he went like this why he was following his sense of smell well we have got less sense of smell and we've got major visual cortex so visual symbols are enormously important and we've got to find those Sydney was a wash in rainbow symbolism they um, they converted the coca-cola billboard at king's cross into into a uh, advertisement for gay marriage um, they, um, they they had up their Uh, uh, all of the writing behind a bottle of Coke said, say yes to the taste you love. And then it had an ordinary Coca-Cola bottle. But it got nearer to the referendum. They whited out to the taste. So it said, say yes to love. And they repainted the Coca-Cola bottle in a rainbow. Flag down the boat, it was still the bottle, but with the rainbow characters, uh, colors on it. So the message was: join the party, be joyful, have hope. And it made anybody who opposed that seem very, very nasty. In fact, you know, I got accused of being very, very nasty for opposing it. And the companion strategy, which is um, a more negative strategy, what for the anti to get rid of the anti-same-sex marriage people was you are discriminating, you're bigoted, you're homophobic, you're hateful. And that was very uh, common. So I think we need to understand that. You can also look at the euthanasia debate in Canada, which I was heavily involved in. And it was exactly the same strategy with different content. It said, say no to suffering, say no to cruelty, say yes to respecting the dying person's dignity, say yes to a good death, yes to kindness. Now, who could say no? to any of those things. You couldn't. And when you said yes to that, they said, okay. that's euthanasia, you've got to say yes to euthanasia. Likewise the companion strategy was to characterise people who were anti-euthanasia as wanting people to suffer, that they wanted that because of their religion, which gives me a few questions about you know how we treat suffering and we heard about that yesterday. They were regarded, they were accused of lacking kindness and lacking compassion. It's also very interesting, exactly the same analysis goes for the Irish referendum on abortion. Uh, What the the pro lifting up, the restriction on abortion, was say yes to compassion, yes to care of women, yes to being kind to women. Exactly the same strategy. Come to the next slide. Now that, just to show you how prominent that was, this is the euthanasia debate in um, Canada, That was the front page of the Globe and Mail, the national newspaper, the morning after the Supreme Court of Canada unanimously, and as the court said, it was a breach of the right to life to prohibit euthanasia. And uh, I don't know if you know how that how that occurred. I mean, it was the most amazing Machiavellian twisting of argumentation you have ever seen. What they said in the Canadian Charter of Rights, which is part of the Constitution, so it's a constitutional right. Uh, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person is a primary right. Um, The the Supreme Court held that all of those rights were breached by prohibiting euthanasia. We could could argue that was liberty and security of the person because the person got upset that they couldn't have it. But how could it be a breach of the right to life? Well, what the court held was that if you knew that you could have euthanasia later on, when you had some awful disease, you wouldn't commit suicide by yourself earlier if, uh, if euthanasia was available later on and therefore prohibiting euthanasia caused you to commit suicide earlier, which meant that your right to life was breached. That was the reasoning of the Supreme Court. They turned the right to life into a right to be killed, putting it bluntly. That's exactly what happened. So I mean, it's an amazing situation we're in. And it's really necessary to recognize the strength of these uh, progressive arguments and their appeal particularly to young people. It's very hard. I teach in a medical school. I have for the last 45 years, but now I'm in a different medical school now. And I came to Notre Dame thinking, phew, this will be all right. You're not going to have a whole heap of Catholic or at least Christian students. I was sitting next to Archbishop Fisher in a bioethics class and the person giving the uh, class on bio, one of the people on bio, on euthanasia. asked the class, how many of you uh, agree with euthanasia? More than 80% of the class put up their hands. And I turned around to the Archbishop in shock. And I said, Archbishop, I said, that's appalling. And he looked at me. And do you know what he said? He said, Margot, I'm surprised it's not more. And that is what has happened. And we've really got to understand that and we've got to do something about it. Uh, And and I'll tell you what I think we should do, and I don't think it's any good just going out there wagging your finger and preaching. That won't work. But I think there are some things, and Eric's given us some of them, that will work. OK, I'm going to have to go fast. I've got so much material I'd like to share with you but I won't be able to do it all. Now, what about the countervailing case? Why are we in trouble in presenting it? What I propose is that um, what the progressive value people are doing is eliminating or ignoring or denying three characteristics of values decision-making that we need to take into account. And those three characteristics are complexity, potentiality, and uncertainty. And um, what? And they're not easy to make. And that's part of the problem of making the. For example, the anti- euthanasia case. Can I have the slide twelve? It used to be easy to make the case against euthanasia. Just simply say the fifth commandment, you shall not kill, God forbids it. And it was hard to make the case for it, even at a secular level. Because we know now that humans have got instincts against killing other humans, especially at close range. The Americans psychologically deprogrammed the soldiers going to Vietnam, because they knew that they would be in close hand-to-hand combat, and they knew they would find it difficult to kill the other person, even when their own life was at stake. And I've often wondered whether the mental illness among Vietnam veterans in the US, it's got a, they've got a notoriously high suicide rate, whether that came from that overriding of that very basic instinct. Now it's very easy to make the case for euthanasia, suffering bad, failure to relieve its cruel, relieving its kind, and euthanasia implements kindness. So what it is, it's intense individualism and rights to autonomy and self-determination. And you look only at the individual who wants euthanasia. And you look only in the present. You don't look to the past and the wisdom that that would give us. And you don't look to the future. That is the consequences of legalizing this. I just got the latest statistics from Canada yesterday. And in the last six months, the number of euthanasia cases has risen by 30%. The original predictions when it was brought in were that there would be approximately 100 cases a year in the whole country. Now there were up to nearly 4,000 in the last year. So it, it, and one of the people that I used to argue with publicly, who was a huge proponent of legalizing it, he was the head of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Quebec, he has come out saying he is totally shocked. He never realized it would be so, Not he didn't anticipate it would be normalized at all, but it's now been normalized. And he wrote a big open letter in French called La Motte à la cat. Death on demand, and that, that is now what's happening, that there actually are people looking at uh, instituting a legal action to say that any restrictions on having access to euthanasia are contrary to the Charter, because the basis for your right to have it is your right of autonomy and self-determination, therefore you shouldn't have to have a doctor say that you can you fulfilled conditions to have access to it. So what I call that failure to look to the consequences is presentism. So you look only at the individual and you look only in the present. And you label any opposition to instituting that as religiously based. It's labeled as religious and dismissed. You don't deal with the arguments. You simply dismiss the person and the person's arguments. And so that's that's what happened in, um, by in Canada, by the people advocating for euthanasia. And they also give you the impression that carrying out euthanasia is simple, straightforward and easy. In actual fact, it's not. And in the Quebec regulations, it's about a 40-minute process with three different medical interventions. And there's even instructions in the Quebec. This is in the government regulations under the Act allowing euthanasia. There are even instructions to do with what happens when the process goes wrong. How do you deal with the the person? They didn't properly die. And so that's the sort of situation that you're in. Um, I believe that what we've got here is a failure of our collective human memory, which is history, and our collective human imagination, which allows us to look into the future and say, if we do this, what will happen? And I ask people to ask themselves a very simple question. How do you not want your great, great grandchildren to die? Because if we institute euthanasia now, uh, they're going to be the people where it will have been normalised. It will have been something that you you will be expected to do. Um, There's an excellent chapter in P.D. James' book, The Children of Men, where she has a chapter that she calls The Creators. Q-U-I-E-T, quiet us you us and every person is given a suicide kit which they are expected to use on their 80th birthday and uh, originally i mean that sounds so extraordinary and i you know i've lived through this but originally the quebec government proposed sending a euthanasia kit to every licensed doctor in the province with enough medication in it to carry out two euthanasias. And then there was a huge uproar, especially by the doctors who are anti-euthanasia. And so then the Quebec government set up a hotline where the doctors who wanted to do euthanasia could call and they could get the euthanasia kits. I mean, it, it's mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Anyway, the second slide is potentiality, and I've really talked to you about that. Um, Interesting, Dame Mary Warnock, who's a very esteemed British uh, philosopher and ethicist, uh, who's pro-euthanasia. In another context, she said, you cannot successfully block a slippery slope except by a fixed and invariable obstacle. And in the case of euthanasia, that obstacle is you must not intentionally kill. And once you step over that line, there is no fixed and immovable obstacle. And this is happening, this is being shown very powerfully in the Netherlands and Belgium. It's also actually even though the euthanasia legislation is only two years old in Canada, it's already being shown there. The pro-euthanasia people, as soon as they won and it was legalised, they immediately started other legal actions to say, it's not broad enough and we want it to be more broad. Um, there is a, uh, a group in Canada called the Vulnerable Persons um, VPS, what uh, statement, the vulnerable person statement, and uh, I'm one of 40 advisors on that, and we're constantly re- uh, revising that to try to uh, make sure that vulnerable people are not sort of wrong, well, I think it's all wrongfully killing, but even uh, killing outside of what the regulations require. And so, for instance, it's, it's usually accepted that a doctor must never raise the question of, would you like euthanasia with a person? They have to raise it themselves. But there's recently been a case in Newfoundland where um, a young woman, she was t- she's 23, she's got congen- serious congenital disabilities. She was in intensive care. And the doctor came in. Her mother was there. Her mother has looked after her completely for for the 23 years of her life. And the doctor came in and within the hearing of the young woman who's since been on television describing this, the doctor said to the mother, I think you should use euthanasia. I think that's what's required here. And the mother was just absolutely appalled and she got the girl out of the hospital But that's the sort of thing that can happen. And in fact, most people in Canada were pretty appalled by that because it's contrary to the guidelines. But the trouble is that once you do this, you cannot. You cannot control it. The estimates for Belgium are that by 2025, 25% of all deaths will be by euthanasia in Belgium. And those are only the ones that are done legally. We know that there's a very high rate of ones that are done outside of what's required legally, which is called um, the practical slippery slope. So the anti euthanasia stance does the opposite. It looks at the individuals of course we 've got to look at the suffering individual, but it also looks at vulnerable and fragile people, particularly the elderly and you know there 's a new Australian Law Reform Commission report about abuse of elderly people we 've got no good figures, but the current estimates are that around that between four and fourteen percent of um, elderly people are abused and uh, the most common form of abuse is by a relative usually a child of the old person and what it is, they, they've got a syndrome that they call Accelerated Inheritance Syndrome. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, if you match Accelerated Inheritance Syndrome with Accelerated Death Syndrome, which is what euthanasia is, you've got a really lethal cocktail, for sure. Moreover, we if you're anti-euthanasia, you've got to look to the impact on institutions, such as like, uh, law and medicine, especially, and the impact on society and its shared values. Respect for life has to be upheld at two levels. A lot of people don't realise that it's got to be upheld with respect to every individual human life, But it also has to be upheld in society in general. There has to be an ethical tone of respect for life. And you cannot have euthanasia and maintain the necessary level of respect for life. One of the difficulties in the anti-euthanasia case is that it's very hard to find good visual images of the harms that will occur. People tend to disconnect from people with disabilities. Frightened, we have what's called mirror imaging in our brain. We see somebody in pain, our brain cells that register pain actually mirror their brain cells. We've got you know scientific research that shows this. So, and as well, um, people sort of they're longing for there's a difference between wishing that somebody would die and making them dead at a certain point in time where you've got somebody who really is suffering, they want to die, uh, they say things like, I wish wish that God would take me. My aunt kept saying that, my 94-year-old aunt. Why is he taking so long? That's what she (laughs) used to say. And that's uh, that's okay, and I don't believe in officious prolonging of life, and I believe everybody has got the right to have the respirator turned off, and everybody has got the right to fully adequate pain management. I would personally put in jail any healthcare professional that failed to relieve serious pain. I managed to get on the front page of a Canadian newspaper for saying that. Uh, they put a headline that said, "Ethicist recommends jailing doctors." <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I oh, the people, my phone wouldn't stop ringing. But anyway. So all of that we've got to take into account. And you see, you can't put a damaged society... In a wheelchair and put it on a visual image. So one of our problems are visual images, and particularly for young people. If I give a lecture to young people and I haven't got PowerPoint slides, they they're on their iPhones. They're not, you know, they they don't even they don't hear a thing. We actually have sight and sound memory, and we need both. And so that's what we have to do. We've got to think. We've got to know. We've got to know all of the mechanisms and strategies, and put in inverted commas, commas tricks that we can do. Uh, and then I think of the next slide, please. I think as well that people who want euthanasia are very uncomfortable with uncertainty. They're even more uncomfortable with any sense of mystery, and they... Um, Uh, So what they do, they convert the mystery of death to the problem of death, and they seek a technological solution, which is a lethal injection, and they then feel that they've fixed the problem. And uh, I think that's another thing that we've got a problem with about how do we get people more comfortable with, with mystery. Um, I was Just a few months ago, I was invited to give a, a TED talk at the big, big, big TED annual conference. Um, and there, the, um, the title of the conference was The Age of Amazement. And I've written about that, which I want to introduce you to in a moment, uh, but then I sent them off the text that I wanted to present. And even though I'd already sent them about three drafts and we were progressing and you know they'd booked my international airfare and everything, and uh, Bill Gates and Steven Spielberg were going to be in the audience, it was you know it was a big deal. Anyway, I got disinvited. Yep. They phoned me up from New York and said, Look, we're terribly sorry, Professor Somerville, but we've had a, a meeting and we've decided we don't want you to talk. We don't think you, the audience would like it. And the reason was, they said, We find you too mystical. <laughs> Very interesting. They're going to talk about the age of amazement and they don't want anything mystical. I mean,. <laughs> Anyway, I got out of it. <laughs> I didn't do it. I well, I couldn't do it. They wouldn't have me. So uh, uh, it's so. But I think these little, these, these kind of warning signs of what's around, of what we're dealing with, how we can how we can sort of get in between that, and particularly for the young people, how we can give them something you know other than this very rational. Limited, terribly restrictive in a way, although they see it as liberating vision of what they and the world are it's it's really really worrying okay, so let's go to the next slide. Um, here's what we've got to do that for those things you've got to somehow get an ethics of uncertainty, stop converting what is necessarily uncertain to a false certainty. That is a certain recipe for ethical errors. You, the good facts are essential for good, error, for good ethics. And if you don't know the facts, you're much safer admitting you don't know them and then trying to deal with that. Being simplistic, we need an ethics of complexity. And being not considering the impact of our decisions on future generations, that requires an ethics of potentiality now, next slide please um so what is this what is the societal value seen and Eric has given us a superb explanation of what we 've why we 're currently in the situation we are, but the two thousand and eighteen um, the societal values, zeitgeist, there's no single cause, but I think a major consideration is what the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year for 2017 was, it's youthquake. It's a noun meaning a significant cultural, political or social change arising from the actions or influence of young people. Now, my theory is that Western societies are youth-obsessed, and one manifestation of that is a loss of respect for conservative or traditional values. As conveyed in the wisdom of the elders, knowledge from human memory, that is history. And I've sort of thought about it recently that older people are all having cosmetic surgery, it seems, to look physically younger. But I'm wondering if maybe they're adopting these um, supposedly useful values in order to seem morally younger. You know, they want to be, the word is, you don't say it's trendy or trending now. The latest term is, it's on. I got corrected the other day. I said something was trendy. And the Dean of Medicine looked at me and said, Margot, the word is on trend. <laughs> so, so it's on trend to have these values. And uh, I think we have to, we've got to take that into account. Next slide, please. Um, we've got to talk in a way that young people will hear our message. And that's important not only for them, but because they're going to be the values decision makers of the future. And one of the ways that I think we can talk in a way that's attractive to them, first of all, is to look to our Aboriginal heritage. You know how when you start, certainly in my experience in Sydney, you do not go to any function or class or anything, except if there's an acknowledgement of country, acknowledgement of the elders, past, present and future. And uh, if the person is Aboriginal, then a welcome to country and acknowledgement of the elders. We've got to start saying, let's look at our Aboriginal heritage. Let's learn from them because that is effective with young people. They want to learn from that. They are missing a deep background. And and part one of the places that they're looking for it is in connecting with that heritage. And I think we can use that to our advantage. The idea that no one's got the right to impose limits on young people, that what they want, if you look at it, it's three Cs. They want control and choice and change, and they have an automatic assumption that change is always for the good and never harmful. We've also got to deal with that. And so that's why they support the pro-choice position on abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, transsexualism, gender identification, absolute rights of individuals to reproductive freedom, an approach that goes as far as... as if you want yourself cloned, that's only your business. And just on the horizon, pro-choice on genetically designing one's children or, as I was consulted on the other day, if a man wants a uterus transplant so he can experience pregnancy, the argument that no one's got a right to deny him that. They've already had a pregnancy in Sweden of a woman who had a uterus transplant from a dead woman, and she has given birth to a baby. So the next thing is that you're going to have men who want that, and particularly, and this is one of the problems of same-sex marriage, and we've already got this in Canada, uh, that marriage is a compound right. It's not just the right to get married. Under international law, it's the right to marry and to found a family. So, what is, ca- I got an email yesterday, you can see I don't get much sleep, um, <laughs> um, that I was saying that there's a case going to court in Canada to um, abolish the prohibition on surrogate motherhood and payment for sperm and over because gay male couples need to be able to buy over and pay surrogate mothers in order to exercise their right to found a family. So those are, the, those are the sorts of consequences that we're looking at. What I, what I would recommend to you is that there's a book by psych, uh, psych, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, you pronounce his name, and it's excellent because it's called The Righteous Mind, Why Liberals and Conservatives Can't Agree. And it really points... Do you know the book, Eric? I haven't read it, I've heard it. Yeah um it what, it what it shows you is the different bases from which they start and how differently they um they really uh, see values and see the world the progressives reject history they as being restrictive they reject authority And they do not employ any sense of the sacred, whereas the conservatives accept human wisdom from the past. That is, they look to history. Uh, They don't reject authority. They see it as necessary for bonding and social organization. And they do have a sense of the sacred, although not necessarily through religion. Uh, I mean, I think in Australia, a lot of the sense of the sacred is centered around sport, which I would call sportism, which is a uh, characteristic of a secular religion. And I believe in, I, I've written my most recent book, is called Bird on an Ethics Wire. And if you're interested in that stuff, I've, there's pages and pages and pages on it. But um, I think uh, that we what we need, and this got me into terrible trouble suggesting this too, I suggested that we need a concept of the secular sacred as well as the religious sacred. And for those, in other words, that all humans need to feel something is sacred. What does sacred mean? It means it must not be laid waste or destroyed, but held in trust for future generations. And the single most important thing at the moment to hold in trust is the human genome because there is, a, there's, you might know that there's a report coming out from a parliamentary committee about whether we will ha- allow in Australia, and this is already being discussed in all the other countries, uh, three-parent IVF embryos, where you've got two women and one man making an embryo. Now, that means that you will alter the inherited genes that go from generation to generation, and that all of the descendants of that child that's born from that will also be altered in the same way. And of course, it's being put forward with a therapeutic purpose, mercy, kindness, all the things that I've talked to you about, because this poor woman, she can't have a baby that's healthy unless we do this. Uh, but what it will do, it will open the door to say that you can design your own children. That's what becomes, and this is the first instance, and we know that the first instance is always put forward under some banner that it's very difficult to say no to. You are being cruel, you're being... Uh, you know you're denying a person medical care that they need, etc. so I to tell try to tell young people what it, what is a sense of the sacred, I believe we can use the environmental movement because they have caught on that we can irreversibly destroy our physical environment. And what I put with that is I try to argue to them that we've also got a metaphysical environment that consists of all our most important values, and that they have to be held in trust also, just as our physical environment must be for future generations. Now, when I put forward this concept of the secular sacred, really to try to get everybody, whether they're religious or not, to know that it's important that you can have that sense. And I hope that through that, they might find something beyond the physical. I was absolutely the religious, some of the religious people at least, were absolutely furious with me and said I was denigrating the sacred. And the secular people were totally furious with me because they said I was trying to impose religion on them. So why don't we discussed this in class? And, and one of my students said to me very sort of thoughtfully, he said, you know, Professor Somerville, he said, when you've got everybody mad at you, he said, maybe you're onto something important. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really great. Okay, so let's have a look. And how do we how do we persuade young people to buy into that metaphysical idea? I'm very inclined to go over time. So David, you where is David? You can stop me when you want to. Okay, I'm used to that. Okay, oh, okay. Words matter. We've heard about this, and what we've got to be word warriors, and we've got to give them better words that uh, they can use. Um, I was giving a speech to, to, actually to the Australian Medical Association in Canberra, their national meeting, probably about five or, no more than that, 10 years ago. And uh, I got really worked up about trying to stop them from approving of euthanasia, so I banged on the desk and I said, we can't have doctors killing people. And with that, Roger Hunt, who's a rare palliative care physician who agrees with euthanasia, I have permission to use his name, jumped up in the audience and said, Margot, will you stop using that word killing? And I said, well, what should I say? And he said, VAE. And I said, VAE, what's that? And he said, voluntary active euthanasia. So we didn't even use the words; we just used VAE. And since then, you know, of course, it's all been modified and got even softer and softer and softer. But anyway, so I went on um, uh, with the the speech, and I made a suggestion, which I still believe we should—if we have euthanasia, we should do—and that is keep it out of medicine. At least we won't make people terrified to go into hospitals. We won't make doctors, put the doctors in this terrible position, and a new profession called thanatologists. And then you've got, then you've got the, you know, the question, well, who should you train to be thanatologists? Well, what do you want? You want people who can understand the law and apply it strictly. Surely, everybody should want that. And who are those people? Well, they're lawyers. So we should have a group of lawyers who will do the lethal injections. Actually, in Canada, I suggested the first group should be the nine members of the Supreme Court of Canada, seeing that because you shouldn't approve something you're not willing to do yourself. Anyway, with that, Roger jumped up in the audience and screamed out across the audience, Margot, are you crazy? you'd have lawyers killing people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so words matter, OK? Right on, next slide, please. I'm going to go quickly. Um, OK, so, so there you got it. The, so what are the factors affecting our ethics conversation? Here they are. Imbalance in reporting, paucity of visual images, impact of social media. What we know is that the young people only go to sites that they agree with. They don't want to read alternative arguments. Failure to consider the wider issues and the common good. Concealing language. There's now even avoidance of the word death. You're not allowed to say death. They passed or they wafted or they did something, you know. Normalizing language, medicalizing. Euthanasia, labeling opponents as religious, biased presentations. On Channel 7 Newsfeed the other morning, they had three commentators commenting on an issue of the week, and it was euthanasia, and they had a, uh, an interviewer. The four of them were all pro-euthanasia. And the ABC is appalling. I mean, absolutely appalling. So the current challenge, it's another word of the year, post-truth. And what that is is um, what we—the biggest example with euthanasia—is the denial that legalising it opens up slippery slopes. The evidence is so powerful, so powerful, and several courts and indeed the English Parliament have uh, recognised that. But you still, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada dismissed, would not let us introduce the actual factual evidence that shows what happened when you do this. They said it, they didn't believe it. So, you know, post-truth. And um, so we've got to have informed discussion in the public square, uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff there that you could go into, which is very interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm interested because you brought up gender dysphoria and the safe schools issue, whether gender dysphoria is actually an example of post-truth, in that kids are told that you know there's no such thing as male and female. It's a matter of choosing what you want to be. And I saw a registration brochure for a conference the other day, and it had a question, male, female, non-binary. So, so, you know, it, it, this is what kids are being told. I think gender dysphoria is a reality. The kids are suffering from that. But uh, whether the, the idea is that you can just choose what you want to be, I don't agree with that. So what can we do? Refuse to be silenced or coerced, and help others to do likewise. Take practical steps and raise important questions. Make sure people understand. For example, what euthanasia is. It is not withdrawal of treatment. It is not pain management. People, uh, people, when they agree to euthanasia, often think that's what they're agreeing to. Advocate alternatives. Speak of good death stories. Do not rely on religion, even if your father don't argue from a religious base, oh you do for your own flock, but not for the people outside because they'll just simply they won't listen to it, Mm -hmm. they just automatically reject it Uh, and there's other things there too I mean Ask, will euthanasia be used to save health care costs? Mm-hmm. Within the first six months of euthanasia being legalized in Canada, there was a paper published in the Canadian Medical Journal saying euthanasia is going to save the Canadian government $148 million a year. And that was even at the low estimate of how many people would have euthanasia. Present positive alternatives. There's a wonderful new book out by Dr. Harvey Max Chochinov called Dignity Therapy. He's a psychiatrist who specializes in psychiatry of dying people. What we know is people want euthanasia. Pain is number 14 on the list of reasons. People want euthanasia because they're suffering from a condition called hopelessness, which is not the same as depression. They've got nothing to look forward to. So we've got to think of ways of giving them things to look forward to. A visit of a lovely Labrador dog is something that they can look forward to, and we have to do that. And and also, the other, the, other, the three top reasons are um, feelings of loss of dignity. So this book is about how you can do dignity therapy. A feeling, and this is a very powerful reason, of being a burden on others. And a fear of loneliness. Loneliness is the current major societal problem. Not just in, in dying at the moment, but just generally. And in the dying context, it's what Jay Katz, the late Jay Katz from Yale University, called intense pre-mortem loneliness. So next slide. Hope is the oxygen of the human spirit. That's my favorite saying that I've ever mm. written. And we, that's what we've got to do. We've got to try and keep hope. And then just very quickly, this is really what I want to get onto. This is what I got into trouble with Ted about. Um, and gender, amazement, wonder, and awe. I. It's not sufficient to say bad, 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 evil, evil, evil. That won't work. We've got to provide positives. And I think if we. Could, I think what young people have lost, they've lost uh, the ability to experience enchantment. They've lost the ability to experience transcendence. Transcendence is a feeling that you belong that you belong to something larger than yourself and that what you do matters and more than just to you. And so what I proposed was the wonder equation. No wonder Ted freaked out about this. Um, And that is amazement, wonder, and awe, which I think people used to find through religion. I think they now, especially young people, probably find it in the natural world, minus cynicism. Cynicism is the secular mortal sin. And I believe that can generate hope and ethics. And I believe that what we've got to do is do a whole lot of work to find out how we can uh, give that to younger people. To summarise, we need a re-enchantment of the world and experience most people in the past found through religion. We need opportunities to experience transcendence, which were also often found through religion. And we need hope which, too, was frequently found through religion. So our role is to ponder how we can deliver messages of reenchantment, transcendence, and hope to an a-religious world. Next slide. Noli Timere, the most Timeri, um, Timeri. Yeah, there's a Latin scholar. So, um, so the most frequent command in the Bible is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And in conclusion, it's wisely said we can't judge the ethical tone of a society by how it treats its strongest, most privileged, most powerful members, but by how it treats its weakest, most vulnerable and most in need. As participants in the public square, we're very important people to ensure that the ethical tone of our postmodern Western democracies is maintained at a high level. We have to bring to bear individual and collective human memories and imaginations, and at every opportunity speak privately and publicly of what they tell us. Everyone, without exception, is needed to fight the good fight. This is not something that any of us can just leave to others. No lead to merit. Thank you. That was Professor Margaret Somerville with Why are conservative values so difficult to present in mainstream media? This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium on the theme, A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit Cradio.org.au.